Good morning, welcome back for part two of our sermon series on the book of Habakkuk, the uh, I don't know, oft-ignored minor prophets uh, are going to get their due here during Lent at New Life Church. So uh, if you haven't, if you weren't with us in the first chapter, I'm going to give you the three-sentence summary. So chapter one, Habakkuk asks this question, how long, O oh Lord, and why, Lord? He is, he's complaining about God's inaction regarding the injustice and the lawlessness of Judah. He says, how long, O oh Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? And to Habakkuk's horror, he's, God replies that he's raising up the Babylonians to bring judgment, to punish the nation of Judah. And Habakkuk cries out again, why do you tolerate the treacherous? Why, you know, why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And then we ended with Habakkuk waiting for the Lord to answer. So pray with me as we hear God's second answer. Father, may the thoughts of your mind and the motives of your heart be communicated through your word today. May your people hear what they need to hear. God, communicate with us through your word, we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So in chapter two, we have the Lord's second answer. It's called a vision or a revelation in verse 2. And ironically, it confirms God's first answer to Habakkuk. That yes, the Babylonians will be used to bring judgment. That ruthless and impetuous people are going to bring judgment on wayward Judah. But it adds something more, something so important that it actually becomes the basis for Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, it becomes a basis for the conversion of Martin Luther. The importance of this vision is, uh, is emphasized by the instructions to Habakkuk to write it down and make it plain on the tablets so that messengers can convey it clearly. This, of course, brings to mind the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the First Covenant made at Sinai. There's also what seems to be an intentional allusion to a, a portion of Deuteronomy 27, where the people of God are instructed to, upon entering the promised land, rewrite the words of the covenant on whitewashed stones so that they remember the covenant. And the, the, you, the words used there are to make it very plain. What is the basis for this covenant relationship with God. So Habakkuk repeats those same words to make it plain. So what's coming carries weight for the Jewish reader. And in fact, the Jewish tradition in the Talmud famously has it that there are 613 laws of the Torah. And they were reduced to 11 by David. And to six by Isaiah. And to three by Micah. And to one by Habakkuk. 
You can ask me later if you want the references for that. Before we describe the vision, though, let's clarify a timing issue. Because verse 3, I think somewhat confusingly suggests that the vision is coming quickly and it will not delay. Then it says, although it linger, wait for it. This appointed time, which speaks of the end. The ambiguity about timing seems purposeful in some ways. Because God will do what is promised in the vision. But we are not permitted to know the time that he will do it. Doesn't that sound exactly like Jesus talking about the end of history? No one knows the date. No one knows the time. But this is what's going to happen. God seeks people who will trust him. Given a detailed plan or schedule, people are likely to trust the plan or the schedule rather than the person of God. In fact, some have suggested that the excessive attention paid to predicting the future and eschatology, to predicting God's timing with end times prophecy, is actually a form of idolatry. The knowledge of God's timing is a form of power. Right? We seek that knowledge because it affords us some control over our times. But the Lord is ambiguous about his timing for his own reasons. That's to be sure. One good reason might be that uncertainty about the timing requires trust. Now let's move to the vision itself. I've got to find my slides here. Oh, gosh. That's not even the right one. Okay, thank you. There's only a couple of them. The pivot point of this chapter and the whole book of Habakkuk is chapter 2, verse 4. And I've given it to you up on the screen in a translation by one of the commentators that I've been reading by the name of Palmer Robertson. And I give it to you this way because it preserves the Hebrew poetic structure that we lose in the English translation. Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the justified, by his steadfast trust, he shall live. You've perhaps heard that second part a little differently. We hear it in Romans and Galatians and in Hebrews as something like, the righteous shall live by faith. It's foundational to our understanding of the gospel. And we're going to say a little bit more about that later. But the main message to Habakkuk in this passage is that the proud are not upright. Would you go to the next slide, Kay? Plus one, the proud are not upright. Babylon will be judged and found guilty. That's what Habakkuk got from that. And secondly, that the justified or the righteous will live by their steadfast trust. That's what faith is, right? So the faithful in Judah... Habakkuk's hearing, the faithful in Judah will be preserved through this judgment. 
Like many things in Scripture, this has an immediate reference to the time and the place that the prophet is speaking. But it also has an ultimate reference, right? Uh, And a universal truth that underlies that initial instance. And the rest of the chapter really is just an expansion of that vision, of this vision right here, of chapter 2, verse 4. It's expanded through what one commentator called a mocking song, or mocking songs that are intended to taunt the oppressor, Babylon, with the upcoming and certain destruction. So the five woes that we read about in the rest of the chapter really describe this complete reversal of fortune for Babylon. And it makes the point that judgment will surely come on the proud and the wicked. So we're going to look at these three parts of the message um, slightly out of order. We're going to do one, three, and then two. So what does it mean to say that the proud are not upright? Well, here we immediately feel and see that linkage with the Old Testament wisdom literature, right? The, the great theme of the book of Proverbs is that the person who lives a life of folly due to pride or wickedness eventually suffers destruction as a result of that folly and pride and wickedness. And Habakkuk 2.4 captures the essence of that, that pride with his desires are not upright, or his soul is not upright in him. And while it can work itself out in many different ways, I think the proud person is fundamentally someone who's relying on the resources and the greatness of the self rather than on God. So when we hear that the proud are not upright, that direct application in our text refers most likely to the king of Babylon. First, that's the immediate reference. And we see in verse 5 that the proud man, the king of Babylon, is described as boastful, restless, unsatisfied, continuously exploiting others. And the following woes describe additional characteristics of Babylon's sin. But it uses language that could come directly from Proverbs. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Right? It sounds just like something out of that book, Proverbs. In verses 6 through 8, you have wisdom and taunting about dishonest gain. In 9, you have misplaced security and wealth and status and power. In verse 12, we have the woe about misusing people to glorify ourselves. And in verse 15, we have immorality and sensuality and then the destruction of God's creation. And then verse 18 and 19 brings it to a climax by condemning the empty practices of idolatry. The text contrasts the futility of the lifeless and mute idols with the vitality and the potency of God. Unless you think this talk of stone and wood is uh, really an ancient concern, remember that in Romans chapter 1, 
The Apostle Paul states unequivocally that idolatry remains a foundational concern, a foundational problem for the human soul. It's part of our fallen human nature to make idols in our heart. Idolatry is something that displaces or replaces love and devotion for God with love and devotion for the thing he has given as a gift, as something created. Idolatry is at root a misplaced love and devotion. In other words, idolatry turns our eyes and hearts away from God Rather than trusting him for our life and security and well-being, we are tempted to trust in his good gifts, relationships, finances, talent, intelligence, pleasure, food, clothing, work, even family. Even family can be an idol. Can you see some connection with the proud here? The proud person is fundamentally relying on the resources and the greatness of the self. Idols serve that purpose, right? They are used, even manipulated, to achieve the desires of the self. Ultimately, to magnify and secure the well-being of the self. And thus we love and serve things that make us feel secure, right? We, we love and serve wealth or our pension plan or our house or whatever. We love and serve things that make us feel valuable, our reputation. Even we, we sometimes serve so that we f- feel valuable, right? We love and serve things that ease our pain and make us feel pleasure, So sensuality or adventure or addictions. I read somewhere that our favorite pleasures or treasured possessions are good gifts, but they're terrible gods. I need to say one more thing about the, the taunt songs here, the woes. This is also from Robertson. Speaking of the principle that is exhibited in these woes, the principle of retributive justice, of God meeting out punishment on the wicked. And he says, it might appear beneath the dignity of God to embarrass the proud before the watching world. But a part of his reality as the God of history includes public vindication of the righteous and public shaming of the wicked. His glory before all creation is magnified by the establishment of honor for the humble who trust him and disgrace for the proud and arrogant. In this case, the shame of Babylon shall be as extensive as its conquests. So judgment will come on the proud and the wicked. This chapter and this vision from God ends very swiftly and cleanly in verse 20 with this this word. But the Lord is in his holy temple. 
Let all the earth be silent before him. And in the Old Testament, especially in the Minor Prophets, the temple is where God pronounces judgment. The temple is where Yahweh's faithful people look for relief, when, where God vindicates the righteous and punishes the wicked. In chapter 1, Habakkuk had complained that the wicked hem in the righteous, that the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. Well, verse 20 of chapter 2 is a confirmation for Habakkuk and the people of Judah that from his holy temple, God will vindicate the prayers of the righteous. Judgment will come on the proud and the wicked. And the global scale of this judgment leaps out of verse 20, right? Let all the earth be silent before him. It's also seen in verse 14 where he says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, these closing words of the vision urge a proper response to God's verdict. And it's not just the absence of speaking. It's a call to reverent recognition of the glory, of the majesty and the power of God. He's given his present verdict on Babylon. And he's revealed the certain judgment that will follow. The destruction of Babylon. And that was real comfort for Habakkuk and for Judah. Even as they suffered conquest and went into exile. The comfort is this, that God will set things right again. They are not adrift in this world. He will restore justice through his judgment on the wicked. And in this particular case, the judgment was swift. The Neo-Babylonian Empire was destroyed less than 50 years from the time that uh, Jerusalem fell. Well, we too in our day can take comfort in the certainty of God's judgment on the proud and the wicked. You know, for me, the, uh, the obvious example here is the Ukrainians, right? It must be of some comfort to know that God will bring judgment on Putin and the Russian military leadership. But closer to home, every one of us can understand and easily call to mind what it feels like to be unjustly hurt by another. It's true for everyone. Each of us has been hurt by others. And I spent some time considering the application of this passage. It became clear to me that we have to also acknowledge that each of us has also hurt others. That we are a mixture And we must not resist the truth that we ourselves are sometimes the oppressor and the aggressor. King David's life demonstrates this tension so well. Sometimes in his prayers he cries out as the innocent and the righteous anointed one, right? Whose whose enemies pursue him with evil intent. But other times he acknowledges the deep well of sin in his own heart. Working itself out in exploitation and murder, and adultery. So is he among the righteous? 
or among the proud? Who are the righteous? That brings us to our last point. The justified live by steadfast trust, or the righteous live by faith. You'll notice that I'm using righteous and justified or just interchangeably. Because today when we say righteous, it sometimes carries the baggage of self-righteous. So I'm using justified to remind you that the concept of righteousness in the Old Testament writings depends heavily on the idea of judicial standing or justification, being declared innocent or declared righteous. As a covenant people, the Israelites were bound by solemn oath to keep the law given by the Lord of this covenant. And only the Lord had authority to declare them righteous. So Habakkuk 2.4 reflects that truth. Just as it was first revealed in Genesis 15.6. Where we read, Abram believed the Lord. And it was credited to him as righteousness. So for Habakkuk, the justified by faith are those who trust God and live faithfully before him. If the proud person is fundamentally relying on the resources and greatness of the self, the righteous person is fundamentally relying upon the resources and greatness of God. Now, how many of you feel comfortable calling yourself the righteous? Not not too many. There is a sense in which I think we should be comfortable calling ourselves the righteous. But it's awkward because we have that, that, uh, that fear of being self-righteous. Like me, I suspect you're acutely aware of your ongoing sin. And as we saw in the life of David, we are a complicated mixture of what we consider righteous and unrighteous behaviors. But the kind of righteousness described in Habakkuk 2.4 and in the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a righteousness based on our behavior. Let me be clear. Behavior modification offers no cure for the plague of sin, for the plague of idolatry, or unrighteousness of any sort in the human soul. Behavior modification offers no cure. Only justification granted or declared by the one just judge can first spare us from the judgment, the certain judgment on sin. And second, cure us by imparting new life through the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel message that Martin Luther rediscovered while reading Habakkuk 2.4 over 500 years ago. Now he studied it where it's quoted in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 verse 17 reads, For in the gospel a righteousness from God, let me clarify, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed 
a righteousness that is from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now Luther had feared and hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, because for him, it was associated with God's righteous judgment on his unrighteous life of sin. But now he asked, what does this mean that there's a righteousness that is by faith? And what does it mean that the righteous shall live by faith? And then, by the grace of God, the lights came on for Martin Luther. And he began to understand that what Paul was speaking of here was a righteousness that God in his grace was making available to those who would receive it. Not to those who would achieve it, but who would receive it by faith. And which a person, and by which a person could be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. And Luther came to realize that there was nothing he could do, but that Christ had done it for him. In fact, not only did Christ do what Luther could not do, but Christ also undid what Luther did. He paid the penalty for sin on the cross. He achieved perfect righteousness by a life of obedience. And we receive or we take hold of it, not by works, but by faith alone. The moment of awakening for Luther was this. God, by his grace, freely grants righteousness to people who don't have a righteousness of their own. And that is what it means to be justified by God. You have a righteousness from God that is not your own. And so Luther called it an alien righteousness, a righteousness that belongs properly to someone else. It's a righteousness that comes from outside of us. Namely, the righteousness of Christ. But it becomes ours when we receive it by faith. And Luther said, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost. And the gates of paradise swung open and I walked through. During this season of Lent, we are preparing to remember once again and receive more fully this righteousness from God. Lent is a time to examine the things that block us from fully accepting this gift. That block us from fully trusting the giver. Do you sense that you are not enough? You're not. We are insufficient. We rely on the righteousness of God. Do you want to let go of the idols in your life and trust fully in Christ? Do you want to reorient your life toward relying on the resources and the greatness of God? Well, The answer is to humble yourself 
and still yourself before the one living God. Place your trust in Christ alone for your righteousness. And the righteous shall live by faith. As we close today, I'm just going to read verse 20, and then we're going to do what it commands. The worship team can come back up on stage during the silence, but we're just going to have a few moments of silence, and then you can start whenever you're ready. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him.